Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The work of female artists has been historically undervalued, but why? Art history itself has been a huge problem. Art history has done a, a, a shocking amount of damage to our understanding of female artists. The Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most major museums in the world, they've still never had an exhibition by a woman artist in their main space. Next year will be the first with Marina Abramovich, but it's taken over 250 years. I mean, how many women artists did you know? Because when I was 21 setting up that account, I probably couldn't have named more than 20. And that's an art history student. Prices for art by female artists has consistently been considerably lower than for male artists. For example, the YBA group of artists who came to prominence in London in the 1990s, probably the two key names that most people would connect with that group are Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. And Tracy Emin's top price ever achieved at auction is around £2.5 million, while Damien Hurst is £9.6 million. In this latest episode in the Futureverse series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we set out to explore how this historic gender imbalance came about, what it means, and whether it's changing. Search Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and join us as we ask, is the future of art female? Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, award-winning Pakistani author Mohsin Hamid on his new book, The Last White Man. In this Kafkaesque tale, Hamid's protagonist Anders wakes to find that his skin has turned dark. Soon it transpires that this is happening to people all over the land, leading first to panic, which then turns into upheaval in establishment, power and compassion. In conversation with BBC broadcaster Razia Iqbal, Mosin explains how the roots of the novel can be traced back to September 11th, 2001, when everything for him changed. Let's join Razia and him now to hear more. We're speaking to Mosin from Lahore, where it is late. Thank you so much for being with us, Mosin. Mosin's books include two novels which were shortlisted for the Booker Prize, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West. And we're going to talk today about his fifth novel, The Last White Man. 
I'm always reluctant, Mosin, to give away the plot of uh, novels because I think it's so important that people should um, go out and buy them and, and, and read them or go to libraries and borrow them. But your title gives a fair bit away. Tell us first what it was that was the impulse of, of this book, because it's quite clear that Kafka with the metamorphosis is an inspiration, as is the novel Blindness by uh, the Portuguese writer uh, José Saramago. But tell us what made you want to write The Last White Man? First of all, um, hello, Razia, and uh, thanks for, for having me. I think that the novel comes in a way from my own lived experience of, of having lived half my life in the West and half in the East. So I'm 51 and I've lived almost half of that time in Pakistan, uh, the rest in the US and the UK. And in the year 2001, I was 30 years old and I had lived in the Bay Area of California and Boston and uh, New York City, had gone to these elite universities and had a well-paying job. And I was aware of you know, discrimination in American Western society. But if you'd asked me whether discrimination was one of the main challenges that I faced in my life, I would have probably said no. You know, I had a well-paying job and I'd gone to these sort of elite universities. I was living in this cosmopolitan city. And then around, well, on September 11th, 2001, when the terrorist attacks happened, I suddenly experienced a, a pretty profound change in how people were looking at me. And so I was being, you know, uh, held at airports and given additional screening and you'd fly into JFK and they put you in a small room for a few hours and ask you all these questions about combat training. You'd have to go register your address and where you were going to be staying in the city. People on the tube or on buses would sort of be a bit freaked out if you came unshaven with a backpack. And so um, I experienced this sense that, you know, suddenly my position had changed, that people were reading a kind of ethnicity, a sort of racial identity, a kind of Muslim racial identity onto me uh, with a very different meaning than how they had read me before. And I wrote a novel about this called Rotten Fundamentalist, which deals very specifically with the mutual suspicion you know, between people of a Muslim background and Pakistan and, and the West. But the underlying question of how one's race can, in a sense, be authored upon you, how one can suddenly find oneself in a very different position, remained. And that eventually found its way really into this book. And the book opens with the character Anders, and, and I want to talk about the name in, in a moment, but it starts with him waking up in a modern city, not easily identifiable, and he discovers that he's no longer white, but he's brown, and it becomes quickly apparent that pretty much everyone in the place that he lives is going in that direction. So let, let's, having outlined exactly what happens at the beginning, let's talk about the name. So Anders, of course, makes me think immediately of Anders Breivik, uh, the white supremacist Norwegian who uh, killed something like 70 young people in an island just off Norway, a really horrific, horrific uh, event. It also means different in German. And, and so tell us first why you chose to give this character that name. Well, Anders, as you say, it means sort of different or stranger. It can also mean manly. It has, you know, its roots are found in different European languages, different variations on that Ander start. You know, the A-N-D-R root is in a sense at the very heart of, of, of man. And so I like the idea of this, this manly man or this man called man. The name is both a sort of cipher onto which you can write any human being, but it's also tonally charged in the sense that it seems to come from some 
older place, a kind of place of poor whiteness, you know, a primeval source from whence the rest of whiteness might flow. And of course, that's just a bit of a suggestion, a bit of a hint. But I found that, for example, in The Rotten Fundamentalist, uh, without giving the protagonist, Chinguez, any, any real aspects of Muslim religiosity, it was possible to evoke a sort of feeling of Islam in people just with a particular way of speaking. And similarly, I think Anders was meant to evoke a certain sense of whiteness, really just through a name. And the idea that he should turn brown and it becomes a sort of epidemic, if you like, makes him patient zero. And I, and I want to really talk to you about what it was that you wanted to explore specifically, because there are relationships that he has with a, a girlfriend, with his father, with, well, not so much his relationship with his, with his girlfriend's mother, but we see lots of personal relationships being played out against this backdrop of this really quite shocking thing that's happening to this small group of characters who are all white and eventually, except for one of them, they all become brown. And I, I, I wonder what it was that you wanted people to, to think about this in the context of something that you have said before, which is the point of writing is, is in order to be able to say something in an urgent way. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it. You said it much more pithily. But I, but I wonder what it was that you wanted to say that felt so important to you that you framed it in the way that you have in this novel? Well, the, the novel, as you, as you just said, the novel is, in a sense, made up of three love stories. A love story between Anders and Una, his girlfriend, between Anders and his father, who is old and, and profoundly unwell, uh, is in fact dying over the course of the novel, uh, and Una and her mother. Uh, and Una's mother really believes quite strongly that there's, a, in a sense, a plot against people like her against white people and a sense that they're being replaced and the sense that they're being marginalized. And so these three characters and their relationships, uh, sort of triangle of, of three love stories is at, the, is at the heart of the book. In terms of, you know, what was the urgent uh, or the urgency in telling this story or why, why I was drawn to that, I think a few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, before the Brexit vote and before the Trump election, if you'd asked me where I thought the West was going on race, I would probably have answered that I thought that you know racism was an ongoing and, and very serious concern, but the direction of travel was, was positive. And just before I began writing this book, we had the Brexit vote in the UK, we had um, the election of, of Trump in the United States, and it seemed that an entirely different future was, was sort of heaving into view, one where race was going to become much more important where um, the idea of, of, of whiteness uh, was going to become much more central to Western politics. And I think partly in response to that, I felt the urgency to write this. And then in terms of those three love stories and why it's this intergenerational love stories above all, is I think that um, one of the things that we see in countries like the UK and like the US is a breakdown of, of the generational compact. That if we had imagined that in human history, that the duty of an elder generation is sort of to pass on to a younger generation a better life. That is very thoroughly being betrayed because we are seeing an elder generation pass on a despoiled environment, you know, a, a, a stuttering economy, 
um, rampant indebtedness and uh, and the withdrawal of things that the elder generation would have taken for granted, cheap education, relatively cheap housing, the chance of retiring with a good pension. And so I think it, it, it struck me that it's possible that this breakdown is to do with the fact that, that the elder generation no longer thinks of young people as their young people, that there's been a kind of break between the generations. And so I wanted to tee up a kind of intergenerational love story as a way of exploring both um, the nature of this phenomenon and also uh, whether it's possible to find antidotes uh, to this phenomenon. There is, as a result of what happens in the story, uh, violence in the city. And you don't identify uh, where this is. Originally, I thought, well, Anders must be somewhere in Europe. And then because of the violence and the readily available guns that appear, I thought, oh, well, he must mean America, especially in the context of, you know, the conspiracy of the great replacement theory to which you allude that, that one of the characters, Una's mother, uh, clearly adheres to. But, but also the whole big notion of demographics and how the changes in the United States in particular, it's quite likely that by 2050, which really is not that far away, America is likely to be a minority white country. And, and I, I wondered how much you were thinking about, about the sheer demographics of this as well, informing the story. I was. I, I think that, that the future of a you know, multiracial majority minority you know, America is quite terrifying. You know, to a lot of people, and and understandably so. I think that you know, if you were to look at any community that defines itself as an ethnicity or as a group and has thought of itself as a majority, um, and is in the process of becoming a minority, you can look at the transition of the population. You know, in in Lebanon, for example, or you can look at many other places where one ethnic group was previously predominant or one religious group, and suddenly its its numbers have dwindled relative to others. It isn't an easy thing. So, so I, I think that there, there is a real uh, sense of crisis in some people about this, about this change. And so, in a way, I wanted to explore, I guess, what you might call this, this sort of idea of a, of a racial apocalypse and to ask, you know, whether it need be thought of as apocalyptic. Is there a way for us to imagine it somewhat differently? Because Una's mother, who imagines that white people, you know, will be replaced, in a way is right, because in the course of the novel, of course, everybody, you know, does turn dark. And so whiteness, as she thinks of it, you know, does cease to exist. And this has happened to people again and again. You know, we, I remember when I was, you know, younger, seeing, you know, young Anglo-Indians or even young British people who had stayed on in Pakistan, you know, after 1947, after independence, after partition. And, and who were sort of watching this new world come into existence and sort of baffled in a way by that world. And as I get older myself, I find that kind of bafflement uh, hitting me as well. I, I sometimes look at political developments in Pakistan or Britain or America, and I do feel a bit baffled by, by the changes that are going on. And so in that sense, it was the idea was to, to write that from the inside, not to observe Una's mother and these characters from the outside but to sort of write them from within without any non-white character uh, standing in for my point of view or for the audience's point of view to say, okay, well, this is how I should think about the situation. Uh, instead, we have four white characters or people who think of themselves as white, and there are only reference points uh, on the journey of the story. 
it, it is so fascinating to be in their shoes. And, and, and this idea of white people giving up some of their privilege, I mean, the presumption is that they have privilege to begin with, and then they give up their privilege, that it could be a liberation towards living in a completely different way is so, it's so open. And yet there are people who would argue and, and have particularly on social media. I tweeted tonight that one of the things that I love about you is that you're not on social media, um, which, which is just this kind of crazy, intense bubble of a world, who are arguing that you are being racist. But I, what I think is interesting about that accusation is, is that you're actually trying to, it seems to me, do something completely opposite. You're, you're, you're trying to say that there is a more open, more generous way of thinking about these things. And this novel is a contribution to that, to that debate. Yeah, well, I think, that, um, I think that race is something that we have imagined into existence. So, you know, race is not like, a, you know, a physical uh, phenomenon like, you know, rain or like the sunrise. You know, race is something that is relatively new in human history, at least the way we think of it today. The ancient Greeks would not have uh, thought of race in the way that we think of race. And even as recently as what's called the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, when the Muslim ru rulers of, 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 of Spain were eventually defeated and pushed out after many centuries of rule by Catholic uh, Christian monarchs, the primary question that was being asked wasn't you know, your racial identity. The question being asked was, are you a Muslim or a Jew or are you a Christian? If you were a Muslim or a Jew, uh, you needed to convert or leave or be punished in some way. And if you were a Christian, you needed to stay. Very quickly, that mutated. And it became, there became a question of, well, what about if people are secretly still Muslim and Jewish, you know, and pretending to be uh, Christian? And so, you know, about 500 years ago in, in human history, in European history, we have this um, uh, beginning of asking, you know, well, where did you come from? You know, are you descended from North Africans? Are you descended from non-Christian stock? And on the basis of that, blood comes into play. And then, and then it becomes, well, there's something different about being descended from North Africa and distant from descended from Europe. And then that uh, comes to affect the, you know, the colonial enterprise that, uh, that, uh, that launches forth from the Iberian Peninsula, Columbus, etc., as, as the Spanish and the Portuguese, and then subsequently the British and French and others sail around the world and say, well, are you of European stock or not? And if not, then we can colonize you. But, but this, this system is only a few hundred years old. At the time of, of Andalusia as a sort of Muslim principality or kingdom, it was really a religious question and not a racial question. So even in, even in modern history, we're talking about a few hundred years. I think it's quite likely a few hundred years from now, we will again not think of race in the terms that we think of it today. So if it's this thing we've imagined into existence, I think it can be interesting in fiction to uh, destabilize it, to say, you know, what happens if it becomes difficult for us to sort people by race? That isn't, I think, um, a racist proposition. The novel doesn't uh, suggest that there's some fundamental essence of whiteness or some fundamental characteristic of which all white people partake. It talks instead, or it explores instead, a story where it's impossible to tell who is or was white and who isn't. And I think that that has, of course, it has you know, struck some people as uh, objectionable. 
uh, in different ways. Uh, you know, for some, it's objectionable because you know it's been argued that the book sort of uh, advocates this um, anti-white or sort of white genocide uh, kind of a position, which is you know completely absurd. Without giving too much away, you know, there are four main characters in the book. All of them are white. None of them is killed. Uh, you know, one dies of natural causes and the rest make it, you know, happily to the end. It's not a book about the genocide of white people at all. It's a book about the demise of an idea. And on the other hand, there's, the, uh, there's uh, you know, a sort of, I guess, objection that it doesn't, in a sense, judge these characters. Um, it doesn't give voice to a person of color. It doesn't give us any characters, you know, who aren't white. Um, as primary characters. And to that, I think, you know, my response is that, uh, well, you know, all of my other novels, except for this one, are almost entirely populated by non-white characters. So it's not that it happened by accident. The, the reason for doing it was I thought if I created a non-white character, I would be inclined to let that character sort of step in to allow me to look at these white characters from the outside. Um, and also allow the audience to say, the reader to say, okay, well, the way this non-white character is viewing things is how I should view things. I thought it would be, in a sense, much more interesting to give neither myself nor the audience a character into whom we could place our sense of judgment, that to inhabit as best as one can these other uh, personalities and to see you know, what happens with that. So, so yeah, I think um, the book for me is, is destabilizing to the idea of race, but I, 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 would, I would regard it as, as sort of the opposite of, of racist myself. It, it's interesting because there is a non-white character in it, but the relationship that Anders has with this person, a man who, whose name he doesn't know and he's never really spoken to him, and in, in a way it forces him to think about himself and in a slightly different way. So I, I want to talk a little bit about two things now, really. Uh, first of all, the identity politics in, into which this novel has been thrown, which it inevitably will um, because of the way we think about race. And, and you've articulated so well the construct that it is. But the novel does live in the 21st century. And the 21st century right now is one where identity politics is riven with rage and anger and uh, a, a kind of polarization that is so, so problematic. And, and I, I wonder how you cope with that as a writer, because you're obviously a writer who deals in ideas, and, but also in telling a story that allows us to imagine things differently, which is, of course, one of the, one of the roles of, of the novel. How do you sit in in this world, given that you are a, a, a kind of hybrid creature yourself? You know, you you live in Pakistan, but you have also lived in the West, in in this country, and in in New York. How do you navigate all of that? I mean, for me, the the one of the experiences that comes from having lived in in Pakistan and other places is I I tend to see similar trends pretty much everywhere unfolding. That is that. Almost everywhere, we are seeing the rise of some sort of charismatic populist figure who talks about the real people of the country, the true people, how they are threatened by those who are not the real people, and how we must adopt a kind of nostalgic politics that looks at the past as our greatest time, uh, and we must go back to that past. 
And that can characterize sort of, you know, uh, Donald Trump in the United States. It can char characterize many of the, you know, Brexiteers in Britain. It characterizes uh, Erdogan in Turkey and Modi in India and Putin in Russia. It's true of, you know, Bolsonaro and the Taliban. And I mean, it seems that at this moment, we are be being very much tempted by a kind of nostalgic politics. And for me, that's very dangerous. So I, I find it dangerous in part because obviously we can't go back. And secondly, the past was not as good as we might imagine. You know, the, the golden age of, of sort of 1950s America or 1970s, 60s Britain or of, you know, Hinduism and India before Muslims arrived a thousand years ago, the classical age of Islam. I mean, all of these things, in a sense, are, are domains that we don't know very well and we imagine onto them some sort of uh, beauty, but they were unlikely to work very well with our contemporary, you know, mixed societies. Now, what that suggests to me is that um, it's necessary to, uh, as a storyteller, to imagine what might be non-nostalgic uh, narratives. Um, what might be ways in which we can reclaim the future as a place of hope? And I don't think that one does that really as a kind of naive gesture that everything is just going to work out. I think it's different. I think it's instead that uh, unless we do this, unless we engage in trying to imagine futures that are actually inclusive and desirable, we are going to be left without any prospect of an optimistic future. And, and therefore, um, inevitably, peddlers of nostalgia are going to sort of win this political contest. Now, in terms of, in terms of the anger and heat of, you know, identity politics, I think that, you know, that racism and, and violence against minorities um, is profound and widespread in, 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 you know, almost every society, but to different degrees. I don't mean to suggest that, oh, if we suddenly all just say, look, there's no such thing as race, that racism goes away. But I think that it's worth seeing if we can build different kinds of stories to include, to include ourselves. An example of that is, you know, if, if you have a story that can encompass diverse peoples, very often you find that people can live together with relatively little violence. So if you think of the Roman Empire or the Soviet Union or uh, Ottoman Empire or even, you know, India, pre-partition, you had all types of people living together, not I would say in peace, but certainly in incredibly less conflict than after those entities broke apart into sort of feuding ethnocentric uh, visions. And so one of the dangers I think for me about any cosmopolitan diverse society is if we get into a situation where it is simply about power, where groups are competing for control and status on the basis of raw power, then you descend into a, a sort of civil strife situation very, very quickly. And, you know, having lived next to Afghanistan for half of my life, no one should wish for their society to descend into that kind of strife. Now, that doesn't mean that we should all just sort of, you know, roll over and say we accept, you know, racism and discrimination and whatnot. But it does mean that we will need to find narratives that allow us to get to more inclusive, less racist futures that don't depend on a battle of all against all. And for me, the novel, you know, really is in a sense about that. How do you imagine your way through this?
Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned storytelling. So I want to, um, actually, before I ask that question, I meant to say at the beginning that people should be asking their own questions. And and I didn't need to because there are lots. So um, uh, once I've asked you this question, we're going to go to some of the audience questions. As a storyteller, you are enormously inventive. And that sounds like a kind of 
obvious thing to say, but actually each of your novels is quite different in terms of the forms that you use, let alone the language. I mean, you're, you're quite identifiable as Mohsin Hamid in every single one of those novels. But, but you know, The Reluctant Fundamentalist is, is, a, is a novel which is a kind of dramatic monologue. Uh, Exit West has a kind of fable quality to it. And um, there's a kind of self-help quality to how to get rich, um, filthy rich in rising Asia. And, and in this novel, it seems to me that there is a, there's a kind of incantatory feel to it, that there is a kind of repetition, a slowness without, um, you know, it's a slim novel. It's only about 175, 180 pages long, but there is something so powerful in being, um, being with these pages where you just read things again and again without it being in any way, the repetition doesn't mean that it's in any way boring, but that that sense of saying things again in a very simple way is is such a powerful thing given the subject matter. And and I, I want to ask you really about the the way in which you play with language in each of your and form in each of your novels and 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 really about how you started out as a writer now i know that you taught you you were at princeton and you were taught by the great tony morrison so i who is a a, a heroine of mine so i really want to ask you about that relationship learning to be a writer because you really are quite inventive as the mature writer that you're becoming. Well, um, so when I went to college uh, in the States, I, I had no idea that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know that you could study creative writing. Uh, I actually didn't wind up really studying creative writing, but I took four uh, creative writing uh, courses among the 30 odd courses I took as an under undergraduate. And two of those were with, with, were with Joyce Curlotes, um, who was uh, you know, a, a fantastic teacher. And the final of the four was a long fiction workshop with uh, Toni Morrison. And she would pick, I think, half a dozen students every year uh, to do this uh, workshop. And instead of handing in a few stories, you would hand in one longer story and then you'd revise it. Um, so I wrote the entire first draft of my novel uh, you know, for this class, and 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 uh, I, I, you know, I, I feel bad for her now. Um, it was probably a huge imposition. <laughs> so, so you're expecting, you know, 40 pages, and this kid hands in sort of 200, and then he revises it and hands it in again. But you know, she was she was uh, very kind and and very generous, and so she would read our work, um, all of us, and she took it very seriously. And you know, my my most prized uh, literary possession is that first manuscript of my first novel with her sort of notes, handwritten in this gorgeous fountain pen handwriting. She both wrote beautifully, not as a writer, of course she wrote beautifully as a writer, but but she wrote longhand and she wrote with a fountain pen. Yes, yeah, she used to write on those kind of yellow full yeah. scat uh, notebooks. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was, my handwriting is atrocious and I sort of block print and, you know, capital letters. And so um, uh, I think the gap between our handwritings was probably about the same as the gap between our understanding of what writing was. But she would, you know, she spent the time to like read, to read this manuscript, to, to mark it up, you know, do that twice. Uh, and every year she would pick a student to read from the class and that year she picked me to read from the class. But I think the most important thing was that she made it possible for her students to imagine that they could be writers. And that is in a sense, perhaps the biggest gift any writer can give to another. That you know, if a writer of her stature is reading your work, taking it seriously, you begin to think, you know, maybe I can actually do this. And, and she taught many things. I mean, she, she, read us, she read our stuff out loud and she encouraged us to do that you know, to this day, 
my writing days are spent typically about two thirds of the day is pacing around, reading out loud what I've written, and one third is actually typing into my you know computer. And she taught you know various other lessons, but I think I think the idea that that she opened up permission to imagine that one was a writer because I didn't know any writers growing up. I didn't have you know friends who were novelists or family friends who were novelists. Uh, I read lots of books, but I didn't know anybody who wrote them. And so for me, that was that was quite an incredible experience. Out of that, I guess came six or seven years of revising that first novel, which became Moth Smoke, which I wrote one way and another way, it became a trial. Um, I went to law school and I you know, kept working on it. Basically not a single sentence was in common with that first draft and it became my law school thesis as this, uh, and then I got a job in New York and I was still working on my first novel. And it was, uh, you know, it was a very strange, I guess, uh, thing that each year I would write another novel on the exact same topic with the exact same characters. And I would call it a draft, but it would be profoundly different. And I was basically teaching myself how to write that novel. Uh, and then when it came to Button Fundamentalist, the same thing happened, you know, seven years, seven drafts, numerous approaches that didn't work until I figured out that it could be this dramatic monologue that was being told in Lahore about events in New York. And so we were simultaneously in Pakistan and America, you know, at the same time with this American interlocutor who never gets to speak. Uh, so we have a, this one-sided narrative that the reader has to sort of balance. And then uh, how to get filtration in Rising Asia, I was trying in a way, having moved back to Pakistan, to, to de-exoticize my own perspective and to, and to deny myself the impulse of representation by writing a novel with no names. It's not set in a place with names. With there was no Islam, no Pakistan. The characters had no names. And I thought, you know, it's important for me to see things for myself and to describe them without using these sort of brands, because Pakistan, you know, is a brand. It means certain things. Uh, when you write about Muslims or you write about a character with this name, those, those mean certain things. I thought, let me write a novel that doesn't do that. And then Exit West, in a sense, it was rooted in a way in, in children's literature. And I thought, you know, I want to write a novel where the decoder ring for the novel is built into the book. In other words, unlike my previous novels that were fundamentally untrustworthy, they said one thing and meant something else. And in that uh, gap, the reader had to, I guess, interpret their own version of the book. I thought in Exit West, let me just say what I mean. And I thought, you know, how do you do that? And who, and who does that well? And I thought, oh, well, you know, Children's books actually do that really well. And so in a sense, it took on a, a, a form that was very much informed by that. And, and when I got to The Last White Man, I thought, well, how is this going to work? And, and so I thought, you know, one thing I want to do is I want to have all of the characters in a sense, think of themselves as white. I want to engage in this imaginative act where if, if we consider that, you know, fiction can have in a sense a representative impulse where I'm telling my story or the story of people that I think of as like myself. And that's a very important impulse, you know, particularly when certain kinds of stories have been sort of systematically uh, erased or not, you know, not been allowed to be told. But it's another kind of impulse, which is in a sense, a transgressive impulse, uh, the impulse of being something else, you know, a little boy being a T-Rex, a little girl being a boy, or being somebody who isn't you. And, and I think that's a hugely important part of, of fiction is we get to be people who aren't us as readers, uh, but also potentially as writers. And so I thought, let me, with as much you know, sympathy as I can manage and as empathy as I can manage, be these characters, write them from the inside. 
And then, you know, in terms of the sentences, I guess the last thing I'll say is that it, the novel took on these very long sentences that you really use only commas as, as punctuation marks and sort of repeat uh, things and build up a kind of rhythm as you're reading, hopefully, uh, a kind of oral rhythm. And the reason for that is that, uh, in a sense, you encounter these ideas as a reader. Uh, you may not be comfortable with or necessarily like those ideas, but because there's no full stop, you just keep moving forward. And you, in a sense, have passed the idea by the time you get to pause and reflect. And so the novel keeps bearing you forward, hopefully. It postpones the moment of, of critical analysis and allows the sort of emotional uh, impact to happen first. In talking about the, the most recent book, you've brought us full circle to the questions that the audience um, have for you. This is from Stella. In the novel, you're not very specific about how people actually look when they go from being white, light skin to dark. Was that deliberate? Yeah, the novel is intentionally um, not specific about lots of things. So only Anders and Una have names. What they look like when they become dark isn't clear. Um, what country this is, what city this is, what's really happening in the background. We don't know all of that stuff. And the reason for that is I really do believe that one of the important, you know, distinguishing features of written fiction, you know, of our, of our main mass-produced storytelling uh, modes, we have television and cinema, which are modes that look like the world. So people look like people and, you know, cars look like cars and Lahore looks like Lahore and New York looks like New York. And we are viewers of a world that looks like our world. But when we read a book, we look at something that looks nothing like the world. It's letters, spaces, and punctuation marks against a white field. And we readers create a world out of that. The creative act of reading is enormously more than of viewing uh, a film or, or a television show. And readers create the novels that they're reading. They co-create them alongside the writers who write them. And so I don't think that in a sense, when a reader reads my book, they're, they're just reading my book. I think what's happening is the reader and I are jointly imagining into existence and experience. And so I try to write books that leave a lot of space for readers to imagine their version of it. People have said, oh, this is set in America or it's set in Britain or it's set in Norway or it's set in South Africa. Uh, why did you do that? And I said, I actually didn't do that. You did that. You set the book there. <laughs> the book doesn't say where it's set. You know, why does Anders become... A, it's such a wonderful amount of agency you're giving the reader. I mean, I've often thought about what a reader brings to a novel, and you've articulated it so wonderfully. Well, it's, it's the thing about it, which I think is really interesting, is that, you know, when we read a novel, it's one of the very few times that we get to, as adults, really play make-believe in the way that we did as kids. You know, you're playing house, or you're playing pirate, you're playing whatever. You read a novel and that's what you're doing. It might seem to you that it's something, you know, much more banal and much more innocent. The writer is simply presenting you with the story, but that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is you are, you are entering into this make-believe world and you're making it, in fact. You are seeing things and you are feeling things and you're having bodily sensations and you're smelling things. And so, and so for me, when it comes to race, it's a very interesting domain because race is such an uncomfortable topic, really, for all of us. And so for a reader to be allowed to have an imaginative experience with the privacy of being alone with your imagination, to me feels you know, very worthwhile as something that one should hope that we could do because it lets us enter into this racial domain 
experience it as infuriating, uplifting, upsetting, confusing, whatever that experience is, all of the above, and then reckon with it. Because in a sense, the novel doesn't tell you how to judge these characters or judge these events. It isn't, doesn't even entirely tell you how to make them, but you do make them. And then in a sense, you need to judge what you make. It's, it's impossible to escape the idea of, you know, how do I feel about this? And how do I feel about these people? And when you get to do that by yourself, I think that we can be honest in a way that we don't get to be in the performative self that we adopt when we're dealing with other people. Mm. Uh, th so the, the, the next question from Bobby actually is connected and you, you have, I think you've answered it during the course of our conversation. Uh, so Bobby's asking if the book is a plea for a post-racial future where race doesn't count. Uh, is, that, is that what you're saying or are you trying to jolt people into realizing how much race matters? Um, I, I, I can't say that I could really reduce the book to sort of either of those two uh, impulses. I think as, as a reader, I could see that you might read the book as an invitation into a post-racial future, or you might read the book as a way to sort of show us just how much race matters. I think my task is slightly different. My task is, I want to imagine being these people. Can I do that? Uh, what does it take for me to try as a writer to, to be these characters, to feel what they feel? And in a sense, to give a sense of dignity to feelings of loss, even if the thing that is being lost is not something that I might think of as, as, as good. In other words, um, these are characters grappling with the loss of a kind of identity and a belief system and a, and a way of, of being in the world. Now, I might not approve of that identity and belief system, but I can still hopefully appreciate the strength of that feeling of loss. And, and so for me, that was, that was really something I wanted to do. Is for the reader, I think it's, it's, it's not so clear. It's, it's, it's up to you, really, as a reader, as to what you want to do with this book. But it's, you know, it's, it's a book about, you know, what do you make, I suppose, of my attempt as somebody who's not white to write these white characters? What do you make of their attempt to navigate this world? Do you find truth in it or do you find a lack of truth in it? You know, what resonates, what doesn't resonate? Do you feel sympathetic or, or horrified? You know, it's, it's less that there's, I suppose, a message and more there's an invitation to play a kind of make-believe that might teach us a little bit more about ourselves. Yeah, I, I suppose to be willing to, to feel unsettled in, in some ways, to be open to the idea of feeling discombobulated by, by the ideas. Uh, there's a question here from Kai. Um, why do you never use the term black in the book? I mean, you say dark-skinned, you say brown. Uh, were you envisaging a world where all races merge into one? Well, I think it's kind of interesting, right, uh, in the sense that these are characters uh, who think of themselves as white. Now, whether there is such a thing is a very interesting question. You know, we can believe in whiteness, some of us or all of us, um, and whether we believe in it or not, it can have enormous power, just as a religion that we don't believe in can still have enormous power over us when its believers uh, act upon us in certain ways. But it's not that, in a sense, the characters are going from one race to another in the novel. 
that we are saying that there was this race called white, and then there is this new race called black. Rather, the novel is what happens if our ability to sort one another by race breaks down? What if we're unable to figure out what race people are? And so in that sense, all we know is these people become darkened and it's difficult for them to figure out, you know, who is and who isn't what. To me, it was more about, in a sense, the arrival of something scrambling our sorting mechanism, our racial sorting mechanism, than, than saying a new race is born, be it a black race or a white race that we all belong to. So, so I left it uh, intentionally vague, but many readers have told me that they think that the characters became black and they talk about how the characters became black or brown or, or whatever. And, and that's sort of a, a, a reader's reading of the book. This is a question from Mitzi. I mean, we, we kind of talked a little about the, the kind of political, um, the big geopolitical picture that, that was the impulse for, for the novel. But the question is, what are your thoughts about the racial reckoning of 2020? And, I, and I'm assuming that it's a reference to the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. This is from Mitzi. Does it give you grounds for hope? Well, I think that, you know, I was, I was in Pakistan for most of 2020. And it was remarkable um, how much people in Pakistan were following uh, events of the United States, you know, uh, uh, that summer and that year. The protests were on the news. People were talking about it. People were messaging each other about it. There was this wonderful truck art that uh, got uh, forwarded around about, you know, George Floyd on the back of a Pakistani truck written in Urdu. And, you know, in many ways, America does have this ability to catalyze, you know, conversations around the world. Uh, in the same way that, for example, when Muhammad Ali uh, the boxer I'm talking about now, decided to not fight in Vietnam. Well, first of all, you know, he, he became a Muslim, which was enormously important, I think, to people in, in, in this part of the world. But also, he chose not to fight in Vietnam and took this sort of principled stance and went to jail for taking that, that stance. It had an incredible effect, I think, on people. You know, one of the very few sports figures that my children knew about who was no longer alive was Muhammad Ali. I mean, they heard about him you know, starting out in life. And so, in a sense, I think the impact of, of, now the book, my book was, I think, already well along at, by 2020. Uh, I was already working on, on this particular book. But I thought that, in a sense, I thought that highlighting the incredible injustice and horrific violence that is happening on racialized lines in the United States was important. But it was also important to view that not just as an opportunity to say, oh, well, you know, we are the good guys, but to say, for example, in Pakistan, to what extent is violence against non-Muslim religious minorities something similar to what is being meted out to African-Americans in the United States? And, uh, and in India, similarly, violence against Muslims in India, you know, which is taking on increasingly horrific proportions. And in, in, in really countries around the world, in the sense that on the one hand, there was a chance to, I suppose, to say that this is another example of, of, uh, of white oppression, which you know, all post-colonial societies you know, will have experienced, almost all. But the other part of it was, you know, to what extent are those of us who belong to what we imagine to be majorities in our countries guilty of perpetrating similar kinds of violence or violence with similar echoes in different contexts? And, and that, I thought, was, was an incredibly, I guess, eye-opening moment, not just for looking at the United States, but for looking at, at Pakistan, for example. 
There's one final question that the person doesn't name themselves. You write a lot about grief in the novel, the loss of a child, a sibling. Is this something that you've experienced yourself? The novel is very much about grief. And I think that um, what's happened in contemporary culture is that we have, in a sense, turned away from reckoning with grief. In recent days, there's been the funeral of, of, of the Queen, uh, of Queen Elizabeth. And, and so, of course, uh, we've seen you know, so much about the death of, of this person. But generally speaking, we avert our gaze from, from death and we avert our gaze from loss. And we are living in a hyper-capitalist world where we are encouraged to consume that our self is what's most important and our self expresses itself through consuming things. And this, of course, leaves us completely vulnerable to the human predicament, which is that the self is temporary and that it ends, that all of us go. And in the past, we had all sorts of uh, cultural, religious, you know, clan, tribal, folk modes of dealing with the passage of the stages of life of, of you know, uh, when I moved from uh, London to Lahore, one of the biggest differences was in London, I never went to a funeral. Uh, and in Lahore, rarely a month went by where I didn't go to a funeral. And being in a society with extended family and, you know, you're suddenly thrust into the rituals of death in a, in a different way. But so for me, I think our terror of loss and our terror in the face of loss is part of what is crippling us, you know, politically and imaginatively at this moment. And so it's worth, in a sense, thinking about, thinking about other modes of approaching that. And so one of the, I guess, themes in the novel is really the way in which Anders' father, who in a sense is the last white man in the novel, approaches the idea of his own death and approaches it as an opportunity to give something to his son. And, and I think that, that that idea, the idea that the things that we cling to, you know, our beings, ourselves, that these things die, and that there are better and worse ways for that to happen is important. And so as we imagine the futures of our societies, you know, there's one which is, well, if it's not going to be the way I like, I'm going to tear it down and, and take it with me, which I think is a kind of rant that we hear in a lot of politics today. You know, let me, if I can hurt that person, I don't care if I, better to me to hurt that person, even if it harms myself, as opposed to a different thing, which is that, you know, perhaps my way of thinking about my country, uh, my place, perhaps that's passing. You know, perhaps every generation's way of thinking about it passes. And perhaps I can approach that with a sense of dignity instead of trying to drag the young, you know, with me into, in a sense, you know, my imaginative grave. Mohsin, thank you so much for uh, just the most wonderfully thought-provoking conversation and, and also for your novel, not just this one, but all your novels. This one in particular, 180 pages or so, but full of just such big, big, important ideas. Thank you so much for your book and for this conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.